This is AFF On Air, the Australian Frequent Flyer podcast, bringing you the latest news, tips and tricks for Australian travellers. G'day and welcome to episode 44 of AFF On Air. I'm Matt Graham and it's Saturday the 5th of September 2020. I hope you're safe and well. The big news this fortnight is that creditors have voted to approve the sale of Virgin Australia to Bain Capital, paving the way for the airline to emerge from voluntary administration by the end of October. I'll have lots more on this story and the future of Virgin Australia later in the episode, but first, let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of airlines and frequent flyer points this fortnight. And firstly, the Australian government this week extended its outbound travel ban by another three months in a move that was widely predicted. The ban on Australian citizens and permanent residents from leaving the country without an exemption was due to expire on the 17th of September, but it will now be in place until at least the 17th of December, and the ban is likely to continue getting extended until there's a vaccine. But there is some hope. A recent federal government budget update cited an assumption that Australia would be allowing some international travel again from January 2021, albeit with two weeks of mandatory quarantine upon returning. Currently, Australians can only leave the country if they qualify for an exemption on one of six grounds, those being that travel is part of the response to the COVID-19 outbreak, that it's essential for the conduct of critical industries and businesses, for receiving urgent medical treatment not available in Australia, urgent and unavoidable personal business, travelling on compassionate grounds, or travelling in the national interest. To date, around 75% of applications to leave the country have been rejected by Border Force, but it does seem that more people are now getting approved than a few months ago. An indefinite ban on leaving this country is highly unusual among Western democracies, even during the pandemic. Some legal experts have argued that it could even be a violation of Australia's human rights obligations under the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. And Liberal MP Dave Sharma, who is part of the current government, has described the travel ban as a pretty extraordinary restriction on people's liberty. Meanwhile, Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison said yesterday following a national cabinet meeting that they are investigating the possibility of international flights to Canberra and Hobart to help bring back more of the over 20,000 Australians currently trying to get home. The government is also looking into the possibility of no longer requiring people arriving from overseas destinations without COVID-19 cases, such as Christchurch, New Zealand, to quarantine in hotels. And this could free up space for more arriving travellers at the hotels in Australia's major cities. Since July, the number of daily and weekly inbound passenger arrivals have been limited at all five of Australia's major international airports. A maximum of 525 international travellers are permitted to arrive in Perth each week, and just 500 per week can fly into Adelaide or Brisbane. Sydney Airport has a somewhat more generous limit of 350 passengers per day, or 2,500 per week, and in total that's around 4,000 people per week that can come to Australia. Meanwhile, Melbourne is not accepting any international arrivals at the moment, they haven't since July, and there are no scheduled flights into Darwin, Canberra or Hobart from overseas. On the 7th of August, National Cabinet extended the imposition of those arrival caps until at least the 24th of October. 
And there are now specific limits also on the number of passengers that can be transported on any single international flight into Australia. These are 30 to 50 people into Sydney, 40 to 45 passengers per flight into Perth, just 25 per flight to Brisbane and 60 per flight to Adelaide. Of course, none to Melbourne at the moment. Qatar Airways has been uh, bringing back a lot of people um, because they, they are one of the airlines that is still operating most of their flights to Australia. But they have been criticised for charging upwards of $10,000 for a one-way ticket. And with such restrictive um, numbers allowed into Australia, Qatar Airways has pretty much only been selling business class tickets. It doesn't make sense otherwise if you can only have 30 passengers on a plane that seats over 300. Um, I mean, you have to charge the highest possible fare. Otherwise, how are you going to make money? I did ask Qatar Airways this week if there was any restrictions on them transporting passengers to Canberra. Of course, Qatar Airways did until earlier this year fly to Canberra via Sydney, and they actually weren't sure whether this would be allowed under the current arrangements. So watch this space, I guess. After announcing 6,000 permanent job losses back in June, the Qantas Group has revealed that a further 2,400 jobs will be lost as it outsources ground handling services at major Australian airports. Qantas and Jetstar currently directly employ around 2,370 ground handling staff at 11 airports, uh, with people working in roles such as baggage handling and fleet presentation. And in addition, Qantas employs around 50 staff to operate bus services at Sydney Airport. Qantas is now proposing to outsource all of this work, as it already does at 55 smaller Australian airports. And the change would affect handling staff at Adelaide, Alice Springs, Avalon, Brisbane, Cairns, Canberra, Darwin, Melbourne, Perth, Sydney and Townsville airports. Qantas domestic CEO Andrew David said that outsourcing this work would save the airline around $100 million per year in operating costs. And he said that drastic action would be needed for Qantas to be able to compete into the future. Unions, though, are now preparing a legal challenge against Qantas. They claim that they weren't consulted about the proposal. The Boeing 747, Queen of the Skies, was once a mainstay of commercial airlines. It's not long ago that 747s were easily spotted at most major international airports around the world. But fast forward to September 2020, this month, and the Boeing 747 is operating just a small handful of scheduled passenger flights for only four airlines. This month, Boeing 747s will serve just 17 passenger routes worldwide. And in fact, many of those flights are only running once per week or on a couple of dates um, with the 747 operating. Around half of this month's 747 flights will be operated by Lufthansa, which still has both the 747 400s and the 8s, the newer aircraft in its fleet. And the other 747 flights operating this month are with Air China, Asiana and Rossia Airlines. Back in July, Boeing quietly pulled the plug on its Boeing 747 program. The final orders for its Boeing 747-8 are now in, and the last plane will roll out of its Seattle factory in around two years. After this, no more 747s will ever be built, a decision that sadly mirrors the recent closure of the Airbus A380 program. The good news is that the Boeing 747 is not quite dead yet though. There is still a relatively robust cargo market for the freighter version of the 747-8 which continues to fly. And even as airlines phase out their older Boeing 747-400s as many have already done this year, there are still three airlines with relatively young 747-8 passenger fleets, these being Lufthansa Air China and Korean Air. And these airlines will continue to fly these aircraft once demand picks up. 
Regional Express Airlines, commonly known as Rex, has hit back after Qantas accused it of using Commonwealth grants to fund its expansion into capital city routes. Despite Rex receiving significantly more federal funding than both Qantas and Virgin, Rex says that it plans to fund the acquisition of 10 Boeing 737s, which it will use to launch flights between the Australian capital cities from next March, using external investment. At the same time, Rex accused Qantas of using government funding to engage in predatory behaviour against it by launching loss-making routes that are directly competing with the independent regional airline. Rex claims that Qantas's newly launched flights from Sydney to Orange, which started in July, have only had around four or five passengers per flight on average, and that Qantas launched the route at this time specifically to hurt Rex, which previously had a monopoly on the route and has since had to drop its airfares. These kinds of accusations from Rex are nothing new though. Rex has a long history of angry and, at times frankly, amusing press releases that attack Qantas and belittle its management. The Marriott Bonvoy Hotel Loti program launched a brand new status match and challenge this week for members with existing Accor, Hilton, Hyatt or IHG Rewards Club status. If you currently hold status with one of these four competing Hotel Loti programs, you can now receive an equivalent status tier with Marriott Bonvoy for 90 days at no cost. You just have to apply online and prove your existing status. And once your match is processed, you'll have 90 days from then to also complete a challenge to retain your status until February 2022. For the Marriott Bonvoy Gold Challenge, you just have to stay 5 nights within those 90 days. And for the Platinum Challenge, you need to stay 15 nights within the 90 days. Singapore Airlines has announced that it will extend the status of its PPS club members while providing renewal support for Chris Flyer Elite members to renew their status between March next year and February of 2022. Singapore Airlines, like most airlines, has already extended the status of its members this year. Singapore Airlines will also offer a range of new ways for Chris Flyer Elite members and PPS club members to earn elite qualifying miles without flying. A bit like Qantas has done here in Australia with the status credit offers on the ground. Another Virgin airline, the UK-based Virgin Atlantic, will live to see another day after creditors accepted a rescue deal to save that airline. And finally, Qantas CEO Alan Joyce says that his airline will not follow the lead of the major US airlines in permanently eliminating change fees. Last Sunday, United Airlines announced that it is getting rid of change fees on all fare types except basic economy for domestic travel within the United States. Predictably, within days, um, American Airlines, Delta, Alaska Airlines, and now also Hawaiian Airlines have all copied with their own variations of this policy. And all of these airlines are now saying that they are never, ever going to bring back change fees, a claim which, well, seems hardly believable, but there you have it. United CEO Scott Kirby said that removing change fees was one of the top requests from their customers. But Alan Joyce says that Qantas will not be doing this. He believes that high change fees and other restrictions on cheaper tickets such as ready, feel, ready deal and sale fares are an important revenue management tool and without that the revenue management system breaks down. If you allow free changes on cheaper tickets, according to Joyce, fewer people will buy up to the more expensive flexible airfares. This principle is also why Qantas adopted a much more hardline approach several years ago in refusing requests to fly forward on non-flexible tickets. 
That's what's making news this fortnight. For more regular news, updates and deals, subscribe to the Australian Frequent Flyer Gazette or follow us on Facebook. You'll find all the details at australianfrequentflyer.com.au. This week, Virgin Australia marked a significant milestone. It's now been 20 years since Virgin Blue, as the airline was then known, first took to the skies in Australia. Virgin Blue's first flight from Brisbane to Sydney took off at 9.35am on the 31st of August 2000. All seats on this flight and all other flights between Brisbane and Sydney for the month after that were sold for $48, which was an incredibly low price compared to what Qantas and Ansat were charging at the time. Jetstar wasn't around back then, so Virgin Blue was really the only low-cost carrier of the time, and it fundamentally changed the way the Australian aviation market works. This week, of course, also marked another huge milestone for the airline, which is now called Virgin Australia, with creditors voting to approve its sale to Bain Capital. And this arguably marks the third new chapter for Australia's second largest airline. I'm going to talk about what's next for Virgin Australia in a moment, but first, how did we get here? Well, when it was launched, Virgin Blue had just two aircraft, one route from Brisbane to Sydney and about 200 employees. But over time, it has, of course, grown significantly to become Australia's second largest airline. And as it's grown, its business model has also changed. Originally, Virgin Blue was a low-cost carrier only operating domestic flights. In the mid-2000s, it then launched subsidiaries like Pacific Blue and Polynesian Blue in Samoa to operate flights between Australia, New Zealand and the Pacific Islands. It didn't launch long-haul flights until 2009, when Virgin acquired Boeing 777-300ERs and launched international flights under the V-Australia Airlines brand. V-Australia began operating in February 2009 with a three-weekly Sydney to Los Angeles service. It soon also added flights from Brisbane and Melbourne to Los Angeles, and these flights still existed up until March this year, even though the Melbourne to Los Angeles route didn't operate between 2014 and 2017. But the airline's later routes from Brisbane and Melbourne to Phuket, as well as from Melbourne to Johannesburg, were short-lived, and the Sydney to Abu Dhabi route has also been canned. Virgin also struggled later on to make a profit on international long-haul flights to Hong Kong before axing that route entirely, and Virgin's plan to launch flights from Perth to Abu Dhabi never got off the ground, literally. Virgin cancelled the route before its first flight even took off. And so frankly, other than Los Angeles, Virgin's long-haul network has always been a bit of a mess. In December 2011, Virgin Blue and um, these other various brands became Virgin Australia under the vision of the new CEO, John Borghetti. Borghetti had previously worked for many years at Qantas, but was pipped at the post for the CEO role at Qantas by Alan Joyce, who of course is still the CEO of Qantas today. Borghetti then set out to transform Virgin Blue into a full-service airline competing head-to-head with Qantas. Some say he was trying to do at Virgin what he had planned to do at Qantas uh, in order to get back at Alan Joyce. With the new airline, Virgin Australia, came a new frequent flyer program. Velocity Rewards, which was launched in 2005, became Velocity Frequent Flyer and a host of changes were made to improve the program. With the launch of Virgin Australia and its Game Change program, the airline introduced new airport lounges and built private clubs to compete with Qantas's chairman's lounges for the top end of the market. And it also introduced business class. Virgin Australia invested a lot of money into its move-up market. 
for a short while, this was profitable. It launched, uh, for example, a very successful status match in 2011 that managed to attract a lot of once loyal Qantas frequent flyers over to Virgin. And Virgin estimates that around a third of those who took up this status match kept flying long term with Virgin. Virgin was, of course, also helped by a few own goals from Qantas in those first few years, particularly as its rival faced major industrial relations issues and at one point in 2011 grounded its entire fleet, stranding thousands and sending a lot of customers over to Virgin by default. Virgin Australia did make a small profit in its first year after the relaunch in 2012, but on the whole, the decision to rebrand as Virgin Australia and compete head-on with Qantas has been a bit of a failure. The company hasn't made a full-year profit again since 2012. Qantas of course responded to the threat it saw from Virgin by massively increasing capacity, dropping airfares, and investing in a better product for its customers, which of course is great for the travelling public and for you know people using Australia's airlines. But I guess for Virgin, it hasn't been a successful business. In its recent report to creditors, Deloitte labelled Virgin's decision to change to a full-service carrier as misconceived, which is quite extraordinary, really. And I'll just quote this paragraph from the report. It says, um, it cites as one of the reasons for Virgin's failure as a misconceived business strategy to change its business model from a low-cost carrier to a full-service airline. This ultimately resulted in Virgin increasing its capacity on certain routes. Qantas responded by taking action to protect its routes, market share, customer base, and ultimately its business model. Qantas was able to significantly reduce its cost base, but Virgin did not have the size and financial strength to sustain this capacity increase without suffering significant losses. And that's end quote. So when Paul Scarra was appointed as the new CEO of Virgin Australia last year, he then set about to turn the airline's fortunes around and in his words, to turn a great airline, which it was, into a great business. And he may well have succeeded if it wasn't for COVID-19. Voluntary administrators now estimate that Virgin Australia may have been insolvent since around the 22nd of March, and still is. Around that time in March, Virgin drastically reduced the amount of flights it was operating. Um, this happened gradually, but also quite quickly as the borders shut and then it became quite clear that Australia was getting into lockdown. Um, it also, around the end of March, cancelled all Tiger Air flights indefinitely, and the loss-making Tiger Air brand, which Virgin acquired between 2012 and 2014, is now being put out to pasture. It won't be coming back. Demand in the domestic market deteriorated around the end of March so quickly that at one point Virgin was down to operating just one flight per day on the Sydney to Melbourne route. They would have simply lost too much money by operating anything else. Thankfully, around that time, the federal government stepped in with support for a minimum domestic network uh, on Qantas as well as Virgin, agreeing to cover any losses incurred by Australia's airlines in maintaining a minimal essential service to key destinations around Australia. So from late April until the middle of June, 100% of Virgin Australia's domestic flights were backed by the government. After this point, as lockdowns began to ease in some states, Virgin did begin to add more flights back, and it has been able to make a profit on some of them. At the moment, it's managing to break even on around half of flights, with the rest being backed by the federal government. But still, Virgin is nowhere near back to operating a full schedule. Back in late March and early April, as shareholders indicated they were unwilling to invest more money into Virgin Australia, 
the airline's management set out to lobby the federal government. But no assistance was forthcoming and the airline went into voluntary administration on the 21st of April. At this point, administrators were appointed from Deloitte. And you've no doubt seen how this has played out over the past few months. After a competitive process, Bain Capital was eventually chosen in June as the preferred buyer, and Bain signed a binding agreement with the administrators in late June. Bain's been basically funding the airline now since July. Yesterday's meeting of Virgin Australia creditors was the final hurdle in getting their sale over the line. Faced with few other alternatives other than liquidation, creditors voted ultimately to approve the sale of Virgin Australia to Bain Capital for $3.5 billion. Under the proposed sale, all Virgin employees and secured creditors will receive their entitlements. But unsecured bondholders, which tried to put forward a counter-proposal at yesterday's meeting but were ultimately blocked by the courts, will only receive between 9 and 13 cents in the dollar. Overall, this is good news for customers. Um, Customers will have their travel credits honoured by Bain Capital and all Velocity frequent flyer points will remain valid. And no doubt we'll be seeing more redemptions opening up in the coming months. But later this month, um, existing travel credits will be converted into what Virgin is now calling future flight credits and these will come with some restrictions. For example, there will only be a limited number of seats on Virgin Australia flights, which can be booked using these future flight credits. And it's not yet exactly clear how this will work, but of course I'm sure we'll find out in the coming weeks. There's also still no word about refunds for customers whose flights were cancelled by Virgin Australia, which is particularly unfair to customers that have booked expensive tickets to Tokyo or Los Angeles, given Virgin has no plans to operate any of those destinations in the coming years. Around 3,000 of Virgin's 9,000 employees will unfortunately lose their jobs. That's a sad reality of the current crisis we're in, and of course the job losses, as we heard in the news earlier, was is not unique to Virgin Australia. Sadly, also the current management cannot rule out more job losses given the changing nature of the global travel downturn. But many good people at Virgin Australia will at least um, get to keep their jobs, which is a far better outcome than if the airline went into liquidation, which was also a possibility after yesterday's meeting if the creditors didn't agree to the sale. So, what's next for Virgin Australia? It began its life as an ultra-low-cost carrier, then pivoted to becoming a full-service carrier competing directly with Qantas. Virgin now plans to simplify its fleet and become what it's calling a value carrier, offering lower fares than Qantas, but a better experience than Jetstar. In a sense, it's adopting a middle ground, a hybrid model, if you will. So is this a case of Goldilocks? Is Virgin creating a new airline that's not too cheap, not too expensive, just right? Not too big, not too small, just right? Is third time the charm? Or could the new Virgin just get squeezed out of the Australian market by a formidable competitor? Time will tell, and ultimately it'll be the Australian flying public that decides. But here's what we do know for now about what's going to happen over the coming months. Bain Capital now has 15 days to sign the various deeds of company arrangement, which will begin the process of transferring ownership of the various Virgin Australia entities over to Bain Capital. Virgin's existing shareholders, which included Singapore Airlines, Etihad Airways, the HNA Group, Nanshan Group, Richard Branson's Virgin Group, and private ASX shareholders, will get nothing. In the words of the administrators, they'll get no consideration. 
The change of ownership could see some changes in the foreseeable future to Virgin Australia's partner airlines. Currently, Virgin Australia partners with various airlines that used to be shareholders and own part of the airline, including you know, the likes of Singapore Airlines, Etihad and Hainan Airlines, which is owned by the H&A Group. If these airlines no longer have any interest in Virgin, will they still be partner airlines? Maybe they will, as they'll still rely on Virgin for domestic feed in Australia. But if Singapore Airlines no longer owns any part of Virgin Australia, I sadly think it's highly unlikely we'll ever see, for example, a possibility to transfer Velocity points to Chris Flyer Miles ever again. When Velocity removed this popular feature back in April amid a run on Velocity points, they said that it would be restored once flying returns to normal, but we'll see. I'm sceptical. For now, administrators will retain control of Virgin Australia until the sale process is completed, which is expected to happen by the end of October. After that, the administration period will end and Bain Capital will be in charge. Eventually, Virgin will reopen its lounges, although we don't know when, and it will become an all-737 airline. The Airbus A330s, ATR-72s and Boeing 777s will all go but Virgin says it will keep its charter and regional flying. It remains to be seen whether the new Virgin Australia will be able to retain the majority of its frequent flyers. There's certainly been some chatter on the Australian Frequent Flyer Forum with uh, among Velocity flyers about um, their distaste of how Virgin's treated them in the last few months, and also that they're not really inspired by Virgin's vis- vision for the future, and a lot of people are going to be looking at jumping ship over to Qantas, I think. Virgin does plan to resume long-haul flights eventually, but this won't be for some time, so for international travellers, there may be better options going forward. My personal opinion is that Virgin Australia should seriously consider joining Alliance, either Star Alliance or SkyTeam. There are many potential benefits of this, both to customers and of course to the airline. Since ANSET collapsed, Australia has not had a Star Alliance airline, and we've never had a SkyTeam member based here. If Virgin doesn't join an alliance, I think the airline risks becoming irrelevant to international travellers. Virgin's patchwork of international partners was already pretty confusing and messy and inconsistent, even when Virgin did have international flights. For now, I guess we'll just have to wait and see how the next few months pan out. Regardless of what happens from here, though, it is definitely good to see that Virgin has managed to survive to fly another day. Australians would have been much worse off if Virgin had been forced to liquidate. So let's see, if the new Virgin 3.0 prices competitively and continues to offer the excellent customer service it's known for, it'll at least be in with a fighting chance, I think. Although international travel is sadly still some months away, now is the perfect time to start thinking about exploring your own backyard right here in Australia. That's why the next Frequent Flyer Solutions webinar is all about domestic travel around Australia. How do you find the best domestic travel deals? What are the best frequent flyer programs to redeem points for domestic flights? And how can you get great deals on car hire, accommodation and train travel in Australia? All of these questions and lots more will be answered in the upcoming Frequent Flyer Solutions webinar, Australian Domestic Travel Tips and Tricks. I'll be hosting this webinar on Wednesday the 9th of September at 8pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. Pre-registration is essential, so visit frequentflyer.com.au or click through on the link on the episode notes to learn more or to register for this webinar, and I'll see you there.
Just finally today, I wanted to talk briefly about an article that attracted a lot of attention yesterday. In yesterday's Frequent Flyer Gazette, I read an article called Goodwill Lost, Customers Have Long Memories, which attracted a lot of comments and shares. Over this whole COVID-19 period, it's been really interesting to see how businesses have responded differently to the crisis. Many have done the right thing by their customers, communicating properly and refunding when necessary. It's been really good to see. But some businesses have frankly treated their customers like absolute dirt, refusing to refund money that customers are legally entitled to, or charging unfair fees to do so, may help a business to survive in the short term. But customers aren't stupid. They have long memories, and they'll remember how businesses treated them. In that article, I highlighted a few examples of businesses that have treated their customers really poorly. For example, there are multiple airlines that have refused to refund people's money or have simply stopped answering emails and phone calls. There are also some travel agencies which have insulted their customers by illegally charging them fees to access refunds from suppliers that they're legally entitled to. Who could forget when Flight Center, for example, tried to charge its customers $300 each to access refunds from suppliers like airlines, even when the cancellation was not the customer's fault and the airline was refunding in full? The travel agency finally had a change of heart after the ACCC threatened legal action if they didn't. The outcome? Flight Center had to refund all of those cancellation fees, but now also has tens of thousands of angry customers that will never ever book with them again. In the article, I did not mention luxury escapes, but in the comments section, a lot of people said that they'd also been let down by that company. Customers have been saying that they simply won't provide refunds for cancelled stays. One person in the comments wrote, um, and I quote, Could you add luxury escapes to those who treat customers with no respect, no empathy, and block them if they post negative reviews? There are thousands who have been fighting to get their money refunded for trips since the start of the pandemic. Many are owed more than $10,000, and some have multiple trips amounting to over $20,000. Another person in the comments wrote, Anyone from Luxury Escapes reading this? After our experience with Luxury Escapes, we won't just never use them again. We'll never use a travel agent again. Ouch. Many Virgin Australia customers have also expressed their frustration at not being given refunds. Virgin hasn't given any refunds since it went into voluntary administration in late April, but it was already refusing to give refunds for cancelled flights well before this. Equally, though, many companies that have done the right thing have received praise from customers, and these customers will likely not hesitate to book with them again when they can. Although many have complained, for example, of long waiting times, Qantas has generally at least refunded people's money eventually when required to do so. And even though it's taken months in some cases, they are generally processed in the end and customers have been getting their money back from Qantas. Other commenters in that article have praised airlines including Vietnam Airlines, China Airlines, Baltic Air, and others for promptly refunding their money for cancelled flights as well. If, trust, if customers are getting treated badly, they'll remember this next time they book a trip. Why would anyone give more money in the future to a company that's completely screwed them over in the past? Perhaps desperate times call for desperate measures and some businesses simply can't afford to do the right thing by their customers right now. But customers are exactly what these businesses are going to need on the other side of this crisis. And treating your loyal existing customers really poorly is a great way to ensure that they're going to take their money elsewhere in future. This crisis may be temporary, but the reputational damage for some businesses might not be. What's your experience been with getting refunds? Have you received some really good service or perhaps you've been screwed over? 
You can let me know in the comments of that article. It's called Goodwill Lost, Customers Have Long Memories. And uh, that is linked in the notes for this episode. In the episode notes, you'll also find a link to the AFF on Air discussion thread on the Australian Frequent Flyer Forum, where you can provide feedback or ask me a question for a future episode. I'm Matt Graham, and I'll be back next fortnight with more news, tips, and tricks for Australian travellers. And until then, stay safe.